Hello, and welcome to Unhedged, a candid discussion of markets and mechanisms. I am your host, Frank Trois, a 25-year-plus veteran of the markets, both bull and bear. Joining me on the show are market participants ranging from hedge funds to fintech, and as diverse and eclectic a group as winemakers and priests. All of us, like you, asking the same question we all do when we turn on the TV nowadays. Why? Unhedged is a weekly podcast, and on occasion a bi-weekly podcast, based on the subject matter. You can subscribe to Unhedged through iTunes. As always, your feedback is appreciated, both good and bad. So let's get started. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Hi, good morning, everyone. This is Frank Trois, and welcome again to this week's edition of Unhedged. I am excited this week to have with me Daniel Strauss from Glassbridge. Daniel, very good to have you. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for putting up with me so early in the morning, Frank. <laughs> and to our listeners, one of the things that Daniel is politely alluding to is the fact that uh, we, we, we uh, given the timing differential, I think now it's about 6 a.m. our time in Singapore and roughly, what, Daniel, 5 p.m. your time in New That's York? That's right. Good stuff. And overall, just before we dive in, dive into things, what is the mood and sentiment in the city today? So when I saw you last summer, things still seemed relatively upbeat. Where, where, where and how do you see the city and the Wall Street community today? So if the saying everyone's waiting for the other shoe to drop um, is one that everybody knows, I think that that's very much uh, appropriate today. Uh, people feel that one shoe has dropped, but the feeling hasn't gone away and there's another one to come. Um, if you if you think about you hear about the layoffs in the hedge fund community and the overall shift, um, there's still another shoe to drop despite what's been going on the last couple of weeks. You know, and 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 just to give our without giving them an infomercial, let me let me brag about you a little bit. So one of the reasons why I'm excited to have you here and 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 want to have you on more. Um, you have a unique position in that on the one hand, you you are a hedge fund. On the other hand, you're you're a PE firm, and on the other hand, you're you're in the VC uh, side of it, and and I say this respectfully. I think you also um, maybe in some respects almost have uh, the, the same tendency I I do to dabble. So you you can see across the board what what's happening, and I think your point on the hedge fund layoffs I think is interesting because we we've seen that here in Singapore. That's been happening very quietly, but but what have you seen back in the city? Has this been across the board, or has it been by strategy, or, or what are your what are your thoughts on that? So I think it's a bit it's a bit barbell in the sense that some funds, um, which I don't need to name, have have axed large percentages of their workforce. Um, you always hear the success stories of those that had one good trade last year that that carried the ship. Um, but the reality is a lot of those one-trick ponies have had a very rough go coming off those one-tricks. So there have been some firms that have been absolutely decimated and others that have still felt the pain. So uh, no one's really been spared, uh, which, is, which is unfortunate. 
I'm given fee compression, transparency requirements by investors, and a whole bunch of other bunch of other factors. There's sort of been this perfect storm that everybody is, is being affected by. And, and Daniel, is this a function more of, of just one, is it, and again, I don't want to go off the deep end with you politically, because I, I, I know um, um, we could we could go dark pretty fast, but is this a function of just the, the chaos that an instability that's coming out of Washington and, or is it a function of just some of the illogical and insane volatility in the market, or is it all of the above that, that, that caused this? I, I think it's really all of the above. I think the trend towards personalization, I think the, the trend towards uh, transparency and people wanting to know more about where there's, where their money is going, having control of it, um, alignment of interests, all the other sound bites that pundits love to throw around are actually coming to bear nowadays, which makes um, what was a very, very opaque uh, cloak and dagger industry a bit harder for people to swallow nowadays. Is, is it an industry where, where is there even the opportunity for uh, smaller firms to participate in this anymore? And, and again, we're going to date both ourselves here a little bit, but, but in the old days, it used to be that if you had $100 million, that was enough to set up a hedge fund and be successful. And fast forwarding to today in, in this kind of washout that you've highlighted, is it is it the, the small guys? And by default, does that mean that small guys shouldn't even be bothered looking at this? Or is it a function even that the larger firms are, are saying, hey, across the board, regardless of strategy, we're, we're seeing an impact to this? Well, it's a, it's a great question. And I don't know if I'm the right person to opine, but in my humble opinion, there will always be room for, for smart people, smart investors, people with good ideas. Uh, that being said, similar to what you saw in the community banking space coming out of the financial crisis and the pendulum of regulations swinging far back in the other direction, it's really quite expensive to run any kind of these businesses, whether it's, whether it's a hedge fund, a long-only manager, or a bank. The, the costs have really become prohibitive. So there's room for good ideas. There's room for, for alpha to be generated and, and the opportunity for investment. Um, but running one of these firms has really gotten quite expensive unless you're at scale. And, it, and it's interesting, too, to your point on scale, when, when, when folks look at some of the larger names in the industry, it, it's fascinating to see how many of them have actually now made the decision to become family offices and, and basically forego outside money. Yeah, family offices, I think, are really, really interesting. They've become a lot more dynamic. Um, they've sort of gone into the business of, of taking over what third-party asset managers have done otherwise in looking to raise outside capital and leverage their infrastructure to do, to do different things. Um, their ability to deploy capital quickly, have flat organizations, uh, and the fact they've just gotten so big because there's so much money concentrated in family offices make them um, very, very attractive partners, capital partners. And if you think about the correlation between um, speed of deployment and stickiness of money, um, they're right up there with probably the best investor and best partners you can have, no matter what the business, no matter what the venture. And, it, and it's interesting too, in, in terms of the, 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 the cutbacks that you're seeing, and again, without getting into names, but, but are... Is it is it a function? Is it occurring almost at the the manager level where where firms are saying, "Hey, X Y Z strategies just like like for example this year, or I should say last year, um, 
it seemed there was a huge pushback and a lot of the smart beta, purely quantitative strategies, just given how, how volatile the markets were, or, or our firm saying, you know what, let, let's actually let the cost side of things take a hit and, and, and they're letting, you know, staff go versus, you know, terminating the entire strategy and theme. I don't know that there's a direct answer to that. I think it, I think it runs the gamut. Uh, some places have elected to, to close down specific strategies. Others have skinnied down their staff, uh, which makes it hard because there's now a plethora of talent available of people who specialized in a certain product type in a certain sector uh, that really have become sort of one trick ponies uh, with no stable or barn to, to come home to or to or where, where it used to be. You'd jump from one place to another and it was a, a small universe of siloed people in each of these verticals that really just doesn't exist anymore. And, and that's a, that's a problem for people. And how, uh, let's use this as a, as a, as a way to, to subtly segue to something that you and I talk about a lot offline, which is, you know, FinTech uh, and where it is and, and where it isn't. How, how much of that change in the industry, and again, if we focus just on the hedge fund side near term, how much of that is due to maybe some of the evolution or disintermediation that that fintech has introduced in terms of fee compression, or or are these two totally separate things in the hedge fund communities purely market driven in terms of the impact and consequences that have occurred? I think it really is a confluence of, of multiple factors. Disintermediation in general is definitely one of them. Uh, demand for transparency is another. The and you see this. A prime example of this is the push in growth and liquid alternatives, which you see in the U.S. and Europe through USITs, as well as as across Asia and some of the structured products that exist, where what otherwise were very expensive strategies for investors to access have now become far more mainstream, and it's been somewhat of a race to the bottom in terms of in terms of fees. And where, where you have the, the million-dollar bagel example of you can sell a million bagels at a dollar or, or one bagel for a million dollars. It used to be hedge funds at two and 20, the million-dollar bagel. Now you really got to sell a million of those. And if you get a dollar, you're lucky. And, and Daniel, w w without um, uh, making it an infomercial, I think it'd be worthwhile for folks to, to strategically and conceptually hear some of the work that, that you've been doing. Because to your point... One of the initiative, and in full disclosure to our listeners, this is something that we're we're working on together um, in in a commercial capacity. But I think it's fascinating, you know, to your point, you know, you've now been making a push to Asia, and to that effort, you you've recognized that you know the the old way of doing things in terms of boots on the ground, getting licenses, productizing what's there. Uh, Instead, you, it seems like you've circled the wagons around your core competency to, to generate alpha. And then at the same time, you've, you've distilled that to the, the basic core component that you can own. And then you're, you basically have said to folks in Asia and, and soon to be in Europe, uh, hey, look, you, you have the licenses, you can productize it, you can, you can make this a structured product, use it, et cetera. Um, it's interesting, as logical as that is, and, and given the, the, the progression that, that you've made, especially in Asia with this, how soon do you think that inevitability in the industry will occur where more folks will start to realize that, you know, their core competency is just generating alpha versus others who might just say, hey, you know, what, at the end of the day, we're really a distribution platform. That's really all that we should be focused on. 
So you're making me give away all my secrets here before the weekend. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's all right. That's all right. The reality is that the juice is worth the squeeze. And what I mean by that is where you know, a lot of times people think about getting on platforms, going through strenuous and, and long due diligence processes, creating some structured products, finding different ways uh, to reach investors, finding different investors to reach. There will be demand for that alpha. And if you really have good returns, mm -hmm. good product, there's a good narrative and good story around it, and you create product that investors need and want, there'll be demand for it. But you have to spend the time and effort to seek out those investors. Uh, whereas in years past, all you needed was a, was a catcher's mitt to get some money that wasn't very sticky. Here, the, the hurdles become much, much higher. But if you spend the time and effort to get there, uh, the rewards are well worth it. And, and I think, and, and again, feel free to, to, to poke me, um, even though we are uh, halfway around the world, uh, feel free to poke me if I'm opening the kimono too much. But I think one of the things in your model that, that's really, really fascinating to, to, to your point is that high concept, and again, without giving up names, you've effectively identified the distribution platforms that can go to scale massively in Asia. They're in a position literally by the minute to say to you, Daniel, we believe that these investors are looking at Japanese healthcare. We believe that they're looking at Korean technology, et cetera. And you then, given the infrastructure that you've already built, you're in a position to respond to that. You, you can say, great, we can, we can design that for you almost like a, like the manufacturing process just in time. And you you effectively have no risk in that because the end distributors already identified the need for you and they can do it at scale. So you're, 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 you're ambivalent to, you know, is this a $1, you know, to your earlier analogy, is this a $1 investor or is this, you know, one $10 million investor, you know, you don't care, you know, and at the end of the day, you know, for, for, as far as you're concerned, you're just giving them data. Uh, that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, I think that a lot of the, the time, thought, and effort has to go in on the front end to developing those capabilities and putting in the investment in infrastructure, systems, and models. But having a pulse and keeping that pulse of what the investing community wants, there's really no substitute for, as you put it, boots on the ground, being in front of people, having a sense for what investors desire, and then being able to workshop it and provide them with bespoke product and alternatives, and essentially take away all of their excuses. Because as you know, uh, in a world uh, post-financial crisis, post-Madoff, uh, there's no shortage of excuses that people use to say no. So doing everything you can to proactively take away all those excuses is something that we found to be very, very useful uh, and quite fun, actually, to, to see work as people tell you reasons they're not going to do something and, and you having already thought about it and addressed it before it even came out of their mouths. And with that, Daniel, let's do this. Would, would you have time for um, uh, indulging us in one more segment? Would that be okay? Absolutely, as long as you'll have me. All right, perfect. So let's do this. So for our listeners, we're going to take a quick break here and uh, we will be right back with Daniel Strauss from Glassbridge. And Daniel, sit tight. We will be uh, right back to you. Hold on. Thanks. 